I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rare Extra. Before patients contribute their medical information to a research study, they must work through a consent agreement. These documents can be long, difficult to understand, and overwhelming for research participants to complete. Often, consent agreements are crafted to serve the legal needs of the institutions conducting the research and fail to contemplate or allow for the future use of the data beyond the immediate intended use. The consumer health technology platform Citizen and the nonprofit rare disease platform provider RareX have each sought to reinvent the consent process to make it patient centric. We spoke to Devin McGraw, Chief Regulatory Officer for Citizen, and Vanessa Vogel Farley, R&D Strategy Lead for RareX, about the consent process, why it was necessary to reinvent, and what a patient centric consent process looks like. Devin, Vanessa, thanks for joining us. It's great to be here. Yeah, thanks for having me. We're going to talk about capitalizing on data to improve our ability to understand, diagnose, and treat disease, the role consents can play in fostering this environment, and the need to rethink consents in order to do that. Devin, in the past, you've explored the tension between privacy and the desire to learn all that we can from the data that's sitting out in our healthcare system and elsewhere. To what extent do privacy concerns and protections pose a barrier to us realizing the benefits of, of the data that exists? Well, I I never think that there is a tension between privacy law and, and appropriate data sharing because it's really those laws that actually build the trust that's going to be necessary in order for people to be willing to have their data access used and shared in ways that we know are critical to uh, improving health and well-being and to increase the understanding of disease. Um, having said that, I think sometimes the implementation of those privacy protections and sometimes maybe overly conservative interpretations of laws sometimes do uh, pose a barrier. And sometimes when the data needs um, involve very large data sets, um, it, it, consent requirements can sometimes be a barrier to leveraging those data sets. But there are other prote privacy protections that you can that you can leverage in order to again build that trust. It's really about building trust. That's what that's what privacy is there for. You don't want to have a situation where people are afraid to go to the doctor or afraid about what's going to happen to their data. Um, that would you know result in some consequences to the healthcare system in the same way that inappropriate sharing of data um, would result in consequences. You previously served as deputy director for health information privacy at the. Office for Civil Rights of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. As part of this job, you were responsible for enforcing HIPAA. We often hear concerns that HIPAA is a barrier to data sharing, that it's used as an excuse by entities. But one thing I rarely hear discussed is the requirement in HIPAA that confers on patients a right of access. What does 
the law say and and how well do providers and patients understand that? Yeah. So first I want to say HIPAA is actually rarely a bear, a, a true barrier to data sharing because HIPAA is essentially a set of permission slips that say you can share under lots of circumstances, including for research, but they do place sometimes some conditions on on the extent to which that data uh, can be leveraged, uh, you know, depending. And those conditions are intended, again, to build that trust. But the right of access, I, th- I think a lot of people for a long time thought HIPAA meant no sharing, including with the patient. But there's always been a right in HIPAA for the patients to, to be able to get copies of, of their data, their health records, to do with it what they want to do. And, and frankly, it's a foundation of most privacy law that you can at least access and see data that is about you. So it's not actually all that unusual, um, but it's not that well into understood. You're, you're, you're right about that. A citizen like RareX likes to talk about patients as the owners of their data. Devin, I, I noticed in the past, you've made the point that ownership is a bit of a red herring. Can you explain what you meant by that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I, how can, it, it, it's interesting because I do say ownership is a red herring in the in the context of sort of settling um, from a legal standpoint what the rights and responsibilities are with respect to data. Um, who owns the data is far less important than you know who has it and what responsibilities do they have to make that data available to other people, including patients. You know, if you think about ownership of your house. You know, you can be you. You don't have to let anybody in, right? It's it's doesn't work that way with data. And so, when you talk about settling legal disputes about data, um, ownership doesn't really get you very far. But as a moral concept, it, it's incredibly empowering to to take a stand that patients really own their data, which means we have to give do we have to think about what patients would want. When we're accessing, using, and sharing their data, we have to give them choices about how their data are accessed, used, and shared, and we have to give them access to it. Yeah. I think I, another, another just a layer to that is ownership in some cases means exactly like that. Great. That's a great example about the house. It's the same thing goes that ownership in this case, especially when it comes to data, is that patient getting that opportunity to say where their data needs to go. Obviously, they're not, as an owner, they're not going to be able to move it around in the same way that we need to in the technical environment. But giving them that option to own that where their data goes by saying that and giving them that indication is really a big thing and that we that both Citizen and RareX talk about a lot. It, it, it's an even more powerful concept when you think about the patient's copy of the record, mm-hmm. right? It's one thing to say, oh, you know, you've got me- hospitals have medical records and they have things they need to do with those medical records just to, to operate as a hospital, right? It's, it's a lot harder to say the patient owns that data, but the patient still has a right to get a copy of that data. And then when they have their copy, they absolutely own it or they should own it. And I, I do want to go back to the HIPAA, the HIPAA thing too, in terms of the, the um, some things that people don't understand about HIPAA is that once you have the knowledge of your own data set, whether it be a genetic report or it be a diagnosis, your right to share that in a research setting or in a school setting or in a something other, some sort of other setting, that is up to you. So that information is, is yours to use and yours to, to empower to move throughout the systems wherever it's asked. As either of you think about the barriers to data sharing, what role do you see in consent and governance playing in tearing those down? Vanessa? 
Oh, um, this is one of my favorite topics to talk about. I think that a lot of times coming from a research background, um, consent and governance are something that researchers as a whole have always tried to, they stayed, took a really, really protective role against those people who are giving data, whether it be, you know, a patient reported data or even clinical data, they wanted to be the, the, the you know, protect the patient, protect the patient's privacy which unfortunately, especially in the rare disease area, it becomes a little bit of a, a barrier. And so what we can do through research, through um, consent and governance is to change up the way that we approach it, making sure that consent piece and the governance piece has that very clear um, uh, opportunity for the patient to say, I want my data to be shared. It, I'm consenting to my data being shared in a very explicit and understood way. Um, whereas in the past, where the way we did research was, you know, pretty insular, meaning we were do we asked a research question, we collected data on that research question, and then it was done. And that data that was collected was kind of done with. Whereas in this case, making sure that we're we're forward thinking in our governance and our consents to say that we yes we have this research question, but then on top of that, do you want that data to be do we use past this or to other to, towards other um, research projects? And making sure that that's in our documentation, in the consent process, and in that governance process. Yeah, if you think about the traditional way that research is done is, you know, researchers, like maybe in an academic institution, um, will do research with the data that they possess in their medical records, or they might do a research consortium with other, with, you know, with other academic medical centers, or it might be a pharmaceutical company research project. They've gathered the data. They may not technically own the data, or they might own the data, depending on what law applies, but they have possession of it which means whether that data, those data are available for other research projects is kind of up to them. And that, that has served as a barrier to research in the past. When the, and, and Vanessa's exactly right. When the patients have a copy, they can contribute it again and again and again and again to any research project that they think is valuable, that they, that they feel is, could move the needle on a condition that they care about, either because it's affecting their family or because they 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 want to see um, improvements in, in 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 people's health, so it's it, you know it's just it's incredibly freeing to think about an environment where um, parochial interests uh, are, are are kind of go away because it's it's the patient who really has the strongest interest in moving their data to the places where they where they want it to go. Before we get into what either Citizen or RareX is doing on the consent and governance front, perhaps, Vanessa, you can explain exactly what the consent process is, what its purpose is, and, and how enforceable these agreements are. Yeah. Well, first and foremost, a consent is actually a con contract. It's a contract between the researcher or the data collection person, the person who's collecting the data, the program that's collecting data, and the participant the person who is willing to give their data for whatever reason is outlined in the consent process. So it is a legally binding document. So if I consent to the, the things that are written in that consent document are legally binding for both sides. So if I've read it and I've, I've, I'm as a researcher, I'm, I'm indicating that I have, the patient has been able to get, um, or the participant has been able to, by, by signing that consent document, I as a researcher, I'm saying that participant has read and understood the contents of that. And, the, and the, other, the other side, the participant signing that document is saying, I've read and understood the contents of this contract. 
the consent process as a whole has become a little bit more legalese than we we have want we really want it to be in some of these spaces where you can read a consent form and when an average consent form is anywhere between 7 to 15 pages that becomes more or less almost un, untenable for a, a, a normal participant who's participating in a data data collection effort because it becomes a lot of legalese it becomes a lot of um, things that are clauses in different contractual um, language where it kind of gets a, gets into a catch-22 situation whereas in the consent process that you'd really want to bring forward is clear very transparent language about the pro purpose of the data collection that you're doing where their data can go and what their rights are as a data participant, a data collection participant. And so we want to make sure that that process is, again, from soup to nuts, it is a contract, contractual obligation between the two parties, meaning the person who's collecting the data and the person who's giving the data. Additionally, that that consent process is very clear and very transparent and also has some thoughts towards the future. So like we've like both Dev and I have been talking about that that patient is through that consent process is able to give their consent for that data to be used within that the process that's coming the program that's coming in front of them right now as well as into the future. My understanding is that traditional consents as they've been conceived have actually been part of the problem part of the barriers to data sharing is that correct? Yeah, I think it is. It's it, you know, I think both of us have talked about that traditional way that we've done research in the past. And from the academic view, oftentimes when you put forward your governance, your um, institutional review boards, your human subjects protocols, that's you didn't think about the data, the data life, the life of the data after your research question. So oftentimes you'd write your human subjects protocols and you'd write your consents in the way that you're only thinking about that data usage right then and there. And so you didn't give the opportunity for that participant through that consent process to say after this research project is done or after this clinical trial is done i want this data to be used towards my benefit later on in the in the case so it is true but it's one of those things that it's we knew then what we knew then and we know now what we know now and with the, through the use of technology and machine readable consents we have the opportunity to kind of use use that basis and change it towards to be more patient-centric informed can the doctrine of informed consent and ethics is one that strives for people to sort of get a full understanding of what you're asking them to commit to. Mm -hmm. um, and, 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 and so it was a result that has, that leads to those long consent forms, right? That Vanessa was talking mm -hmm. about where, where there is this desire to provide all of the information about a particular research project. So that people are informed, the form gets really long. The re end result is that people are less likely to read it. Mm -hmm. um, and they do tend to be that they have tended to be very research project specific, but there, but there is an evolution. The, the law is evolving, particularly around data consent for data sharing for research, as opposed to what's called interventional research, where you're consenting to actually have something done to you from a, you know, a bodily body perspective, you're getting, you're getting blood drawn or you're getting, there's something that's being altered in, in treatment and you're consenting to that. When you're talking about data research, you know, most of the time, the risks are about privacy risks. Mm -hmm. And so you can, you, can, you can explain those risks in a much more succinct way. And you also have an opportunity to put in front of people an ability to consent to future research. So, so that people who, want, who, are very, um, who are very willing and want to support a, a broad range of research projects with their data, you give them an opportunity to do that so that they don't miss an opportunity because 
they weren't looking at their email for the specific consent that came up for the project that, you know, that they would have wanted to participate in. On the other hand, you can also say to people, look, if you don't want to broadly consent to this, we'll also give you the opportunity to do this on a project by project basis. You, we can give people those choices all in or project by project. Yeah. Both of your organizations have had to develop consent agreements for the data you collect. I'm wondering if each of you can talk about the approach your organizations have taken. And and from a philosophical point of view, how you saw the role that these consents would play and what you're hoping to accomplish. Uh, Devin, do you want to start? Yeah, I mean, we... (laughs) You know, the other thing that plays a role in this is when you're a digital company, right? Yet basically your product leaders will not let you put a long consent in front of people. They're like, people are doing this on their phones. They're doing this on their laptops. You you know, it is, you have to do better at at highlighting the things that people care about in the consents you're putting in front of them. You, you can always give them an option. We use a layered notice approach. So we put very brief consents in front of, in front of folks in many cases, but then they have an option to read a longer one if they want to do that. But those brief consents absolutely highlight what what the most important things are that we that we think people should know before they say yes. Um, and and so that's generally the approach. And again, it is this kind of layered approach where you get a chance to um, right off the bat say, "Oh, I I agree to share my de-identified data." Now we do. Um, uh, remove identifiers from data before sharing it with researchers to the extent that we can. Um, and, uh, and, and we let people say broadly that they want to do all research or we let them say, you know, no, um, I would prefer to find this out on a project by project basis. And then we also give them a dashboard where they can manage their consents. And, and if they've done that broad consent, and they're suddenly they were getting nervous about it, or for whatever reason they want to change their preferences, they can go into a dashboard and sit and just click that off. And you know, information that's already been provided to a researcher is not gonna be pulled back from that researcher, and we let people know that. Um, but but that for future research, they're allowed to sort of toggle it on, toggle it off to the extent that they want to. Vanessa? Yeah, and I think that obviously Reset and Rarex are working together in, in yes. several ways in this. So very similar in that that approach too. That that later approach, we're both digital companies, and when it comes down to it, at the end of the day, when we used to do consent, you know, this is a little bit dating me, but when you would sit next to the patient, there was a paper document that you went through and you highlighted and you read it almost directly to that patient, then handed it over to them to read too. So that process is very digi- different in our digital world, especially like as Devin said, we're accessing these through our phones. And most of the time it's our phones, to be honest, you know, we look at who, who or how people are actually accessing this. And at the, at the end of the day, yeah, people are not reading through all of those, those terms of use and all of those things. So when, for the consent process, as we've been talking about, the purpose of it is to, is to ensure that the patient or the participant who's ever giving that data is educated on what they're, they're consenting to. And so that layered approach is really something that is really needed uh, in a philosophical way for both of our organizations to make sure that as the patient's coming in, the participants coming in, they know exactly what they're consenting to. And again, giving them that ability to change change their data, data sharing preferences, because we know that people on def, uh, as they're on their different odysseys, they might be in different spaces where, where um, they'd like to share their data or they would not like to share their data. And essentially, you know, we see a lot in the rare space that people are willing to give their data kind of in a 
full way. And it's we really want to support that and, and honor that that request in a very transparent and very you know contractual way. We want to as as companies both with Citizen and RareX, we want to respect that and also maintain that privacy and the confidentiality that kind of comes 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 along with us being digital technical technology companies. Earlier, you had mentioned that you know traditional consents could be. 15 pages long and filled with legalese. Uh, aside from recognizing the different platforms on which patients might be reviewing these, how much of it in, in designing these consents were you focused on removing burdens from patients? Oh, completely. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it is, it, it, it's not necessarily more protective of a patient or a research participant to give them a long consent that they're not reading, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I, I think that's the, that's sometimes the piece that, you know, that's where practicality kind of runs into ethics, right? You know, ethics, ethics has traditionally, you know, sort of erred on the side of, oh, we need to give people complete information and that is just making these consent forms longer and longer. And then we're asking people, to read and understand them. And, you know, look, people may, some people will read a long consent, but I think most of us don't. We might skim it, or we might, especially if we're doing this online, I want to participate in this research project. I'm flipping through, I'm I'm running that scroll bar. I'm looking for the bottom so so that I can check, so that I can check, yes. And that's not any more protective. And it really, it's, you have to have the discipline to figure out what are the three mo- three to five most important one sentences, one sentence phrases that we need to say to people. Yeah. And then we, and then for people who want the longer form here, click here, you can read the more complete. And I'm a lawyer. I like to write a lot of words. This was hard. <laughs> <laughs> But it is really important not to burden people. It's really yeah. important. I think the other thing that you you opened that that with um, Devin is that, you know, I think there's a there's a respect for, um, you know, we think that sometimes recontacting or the the consent to recontact or giving them that opportunity, they're like, oh, we'll let you know when there's another option. You know, some people are like, we don't, I don't want to know if there's another option. I'm consenting to that other option even before we know it's existing. Is a respect for that patient to that participant to give them respect, be like, we respect your time enough to know that you're going to consent to ahead of time. We're going to, we're going to let this go. We're going to give you that opportunity to say, yes, it, it's the same thing. And additionally with these consents being that dynamic where they can share it past that original intended use is that it's respecting the time that the patient and the participant put in to giving that data already that we're respecting that they were not going to use their time up again to recollect the data or to recontact them because they've already said, yep, I've given the data and the time. I really wanted to go further and faster with this consent process and this governance process let me do it. Let me say yes to this in a very clear and transparent manner. I think both organizations would describe themselves as being patient-centric. What makes a consent process patient-centric? How do you you craft a consent process so it is patient-centric? Well, I mean, again, you use a layered approach. Um, You let people I, I think Vanessa is spot on. We used to call it set it and forget it, which I think is an old, a term from an old. Ron Popeil, Ron Popeil from, <laughs> who just passed away, oh. rest his soul, he, but he was the set it and forget it guy. Yeah. To let people set it and forget it because they have other things going on in their lives. If this is what they want, 
than to give them the option to do that rather than forcing them to, to do this on a project by project basis. But of course, giving people the project by project um, option, um, giving them an easy way to change their consents if they want to, to manage them. Um, I think all of that is, oh, and using regular language. Oh, yes. Right? Yes. Not over legalese. Yeah. Yeah. I think the big thing that we went into with this too is when we wrote a document and we have fantastic lawyers, just like Devin, we have great lawyers. And to take a look at it, and we thought we really had it well. We were like, okay, this is like, you know, a greeting level that we think is semi appropriate. And then what we did is we took it to a very lay person who didn't, had no idea what Rare X was. And we said, we put it in front of her and we went line by line literally line by line. And when it came down to it, we hadn't gotten there yet. So we made a lot of adjustments because at the end of the day, you do want it to be patient centric to all patients that are coming at this, whether regardless of SES, regardless of language level, that you are at least getting down there, that if they're reading it, they're understanding what's in that document. So I think that that language level, like you're speaking to my soul on that one, Devin, because at the end of the day, with this space being on the digital platforms in the the technologically advanced space, Anybody can find these consents. And so we want those, anybody who can find these consents to understand what they're clicking through and agreeing to. I want to go back to a point we touched on earlier. Consent forms have traditionally been created to address the needs of a, a specific project. And one of the reasons I think they've, they've created some barriers to data sharing is because they haven't been very forward-looking how can consent forms be forward-looking and contemplate research uses that may not yet exist while not being overbroad? Well, again, if, if you're going to collect consent from people to a broad range of future uses, then there isn't any way to tell people some of the details of a particular project. Um, but, what you, but, but what you can do um, and what we have done and what I think RareX has done too, although Vanessa can speak to that, is to let people know if you're signing this broad consent, we won't be able to tell you, um, or we won't come back to you and ask you again for the specific research project. But, but it will be a research project on your disease. I think you can make other commitments to people too that have to do with whether you're just going to be completely reliant on consent or whether you're going to require institutional review board approval, for example, of research projects. So, so you can tell people, you know, that we are not opening up your data to anybody and everybody who, you know, we will make sure that they are legitimate researchers, that they have filed and gotten a protocol approved, that they, you know, that this is legit stuff. We will also remove identifiers um, to the extent that we can from the, from the data before sharing it with the researcher. It will be on um, it will be research that that is intended to result in, you know, is trying to discover something about your, the disease of interest to you. So, I, you know, I, I think there are ways that you can describe the research in a way that people w- wouldn't be surprised if they, you know, to see a list of research projects that involve their data and say, oh, I wouldn't have consented, you know, I didn't consent to that. It's like, well... I don't, you know, you have to, you have to try to minimize the likelihood that someone would say that, but the way that you do that is, is not necessarily by loading all the, all the descriptions of each project into the consent, because that would be, you couldn't have a broad consent to future research. You have, you have to sort of pull on other threads and use other tools like providing 
you know, publicizing what projects have been done with the data so that people can go there and see. Plus, they want to know. Yeah. I think that you made a great point about that piece, too, is that, um, well, knowing when your data is being used and then in our consent form is saying genomics research is actually a great example of this, is that like the the technology that the the speed at which technology is being created for to do genomics research is you could never cover that right you could never even describe it in a patient-centric way in a consent form so really kind of even just saying in the consent form we don't know you, you, you know like technology is coming is going for you know further faster than ever before we don't know but if you are interested in a, in making sure that your data is part of this or making sure your your bio specimen is part of this you can indicate that in your in your preferences for your consent form and then a give it and then the same thing goes for devin mentioned about you know, having the next process, the next program or the next um, project that it's in, in um, incorporated in, does it need an IRB approval, which is a human, you know, a human subjects ethics um, review of what the, the, the project is, or does it not? So what RareX is doing in some of these cases is we have a data, pre uh, data preferences survey, where after that, they can actually make the like ontology or label their data to say, I only want my data to be used in uh, projects that have had a, an IRB review approved or an exemption, or only in cases where it's not going to a biopharma or only in places that it is going to a biopharma so that they can add that layered approach. So when it becomes a little bit you know, amorphous or things we don't know are gonna happen in the future, at least there's some guidance and some structure that that patient is giving. And we're pulling on those other threads, as Devin said, that we can utilize these other, other spaces to kind of give, have the, the patient or the participant craft where they want their data to go with having that ability to be, to be flexible in the, into the future uses. You're both involved with companies that are very technology centric. How has technology enabled these new approaches to consenting patients? Well, I, I Again, because you can do this online, um, it enables people to participate in research from the confines of their home, from, you know, while they're waiting in line at the grocery store, while they're, you know, in the middle of their busy lives, as opposed to needing to physically come into a research facility in order to go through a consent process. Um, it also enable, and, and, and again, because we're talking about research on data, for the most part, um, or biospecimens that have already been collected, um, you know, it, it is possible for people to do this again from from the comfort of their of their living rooms or really anywhere. So I think I think that's the big thing that technology adds. And then, of course, when you're doing this layered notice approach, you can literally have like little click-in bubbles as part of the of the consent. Like, oh, click click here to learn more about what this term means. Click here to learn more about this, as opposed to, you know, when you're using a paper process, it's you can't do that. So it's, you know, it 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 really accommodates a layered, a layered approach to providing inf information to people um, you know, in, in a way that that they can control. Yeah. The other thing is, I think that it, it tor like, towards that clicking the bubbles piece is that the data you collect in your consent form, meaning like the where do you want your data to be used, that all that ontologies, it almost becomes data itself, right? You're one, you're collecting how how many people want to share data, and you can actually report that back to the larger space that this is you know the right way to go. But on top of it, it actually enables your technology to move that consent or those data sharing preferences through the system with your data. 
So you're able to say, yes, this data is labeled as full consent with IRB approval through this set. And so you can use that, that machine readable technology both for, for consent, um, consent that's machine readable, as well as like the data sharing ontologies that are machine readable to help it move through these technology, you know, backgrounds much easier. Um, the additional piece that I think that both citizen and RareX are really dedicated to is connecting disparate data sets. You know, they, we talk about federation, we talk about connection. We're, we're able to do that a little bit more easily with this technology and the labeling those data sets. So if a patient consents and yes, I want my data to be linked to, you know, their citizen data because we're doing some of this right now, yeah. saying that, yep, I'm in citizen. I want my data to be connected. We can label that and say, yes, here's the consent that's been documented, you know, um, flagged in the technology on both sides. Now that data can be linked because it's been consented on both sides. And so it really does enable that. The technology really does enable both sides for the consent and consent enabling the technology. As you think about the consent process you've created at each of your organizations. Is, is there anything you're doing that you think is unique? I don't, I, I think the models that Citizen and RareX are following um, are, are, fair, are still pretty rare in research. I, I think the traditional research model is still the predominant one. Um, and so while the approach that we're taking is not necessarily novel to our two companies, it's also very similar to the one, for example, being done by the federal All of Us Research Program. And they're, you know, I think these, this type of approach is gaining in popularity, but it's still, you know, a, a minority um, of how research gets done. Um, but we think it's going to, I mean, I personally, and I, I suspect Vanessa agrees, I think it's going to, it is the wave of the future. It is the way research will be done in the future because it, it can happen so much faster. Yeah. So Completely much faster. Agree. Completely agree. I think that it is, it, I don't, it's, that is something a little bit unique to our approach. And also that it, for both organizations and for both companies, it is something that we are it's very clear in our ethos. It's in both of the ways that we're going to operate. We're dedicated to making sure this this is the approach that we're going to take, and that it is patient centric and patient forward, and thinks about those future use cases from day one. Um, because as we both know, governance is a project. It's a big project, and it's always going to be ongoing in these cases, which involves the consent and everything. And so we are both dedicated. And I think that is a little bit unique that we are going outside of this. We're thinking about the larger ecosystem of data versus you know the way that research is traditionally done. Um, and I think that it is the wave of the future. A lot of people, you know, when we talk about our, our approaches, it you get some looks. I'm sure that Devin does too, that yeah. is, this, is this for real? And when they actually see it on, on paper, when they're seeing that the people do want to share the data, the, the data that they're giving is robust, it's, it's gonna, it is the wave of the future. As you look beyond your own organizations, are there things you'd like to see the broader research community and industry take with regard to consent and governance? Devin? That's a good question. Um, I, th I think folks do a, a pretty good job. I mean, the long consent forms, they really have to go. And I still see them. I see them everywhere. Um, I think that'll take some time because when you're kind of embedded in, in a, in a it's, it's legacy, it's legacy system thinking. And it's, it's very, and, and it's also kind of embedded in the culture of informed consent that sort of assumed that more information was always going to be better um, without, without understanding that sometimes more information actually overwhelms people to the point where they give up and they stop paying attention. Mm -hmm. 
So, um, so I think that that's, um, that's going to take a, a bit of time to disrupt. Uh, I don't, you know, the patient centric model that we've developed, um, that our two companies have developed, I think is the right environment for that disruption, because we've added so many other components to, to kind of uh, the patient centricity aspects of what we're doing, that it's not just about the consent form. Um, and that really helps us to not place so much, um, not load consent up as sort of the only way that we put participants first. Um, that's also part of the problem. Uh, I, 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 I would like, I would like to see, um, the traditional re you know, traditional research institutions gravitate to a model that's more like ours. But having said that, um, uh, I don't, I, I think it'll take some time. And in the meantime, I think it's important that the type of research that we're facilitating be recognized as equally as impactful and relevant um, as that done in traditional institutions, because it's the same data. Yeah, I, I agree with that too. I think that the, it's it's we want we kind of do want to see that in the broader research community that they think about when they're doing their governance for their res the research that they're doing that they are thinking outside of their first use case um, that they're outside you know thinking about things in the future. Um, it doesn't mean that they have to make it out you know open and open and data, data sharing from day one. They can you know we don't want to inhibit them doing their their specific research projects because that is important. The same thing goes for biopharma. We don't want to inhibit you know bringing compounds to to um, development or anything like that. But at the end of the day after your IND is filed and after that data is go, you know goes into the you know your data vaults you know thinking about the fact that your governance in your consent process could have enabled that that baseline data or that you know the the placebo arm to go into a larger data set for that's patient centric and patient forward would be really beneficial in this space, especially when we're talking about rare disease where you know data is power in a lot of these small small disorders and thinking about that in the governance aspect and the consent process is I think really beneficial when we're looking into the larger research and biopharma community. Devin McGraw, Chief Regulatory Officer of Citizen and Vanessa Vogel Farley, R and D strategy lead for RareX. Devin, Vanessa, thank you both. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for listening. RareX is a collaborative platform for global data sharing and analysis to accelerate treatments for rare disease. RareX is adapting proven technologies and partnering with leading experts to create a federated data analysis platform specifically designed by rare community leaders and scaled to support the diverse and expanding needs of rare disease research, development, and care. To learn more about RareX, go to rare-x.org. This podcast is produced for RareX by the Levine Media Group. Music is courtesy of the Jonah Levine Collective.